We are going to be in Romans 14 still. We've been spending quite a bit of time in Romans 14. I'm going to go turn myself down, which is not common. (laughs) All right, everybody have a hand up. Okay, well, let's pray and then we'll jump into the text. God, thank you again for the book of Romans, for the rich theology and the practical application that we find there. Pray that you would give us the ability to, uh, to listen to it, to apply it, to uh, have wisdom in how to differentiate and how you would have us to, to live and to operate. And, uh, thank you again for your word, for the, the men that you carried along to write it, for the fact that you've preserved it for us over these years. And, uh, we pray that you would open up our eyes to the truth of your word this morning. God, thank you for these people, for the fellowship we can have here, and just for the, the love and camaraderie that we have amongst us. pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and start by reading our text. We're going to be looking at Romans 14, 18 through 23, but I'm going to go back and read a little bit before that to give us some context some context. So starting in Romans 14, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now here's where we're going to be picking up today. Verse 18. For he who is... For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So, actually I want you to turn back to chapter 13 for a moment. And let's look at the the context in which Paul's writing. Remember that this is a a letter that Paul's writing. He's having a, a conversation with the Romans, and uh, the, the thought flow is there, right? So we know that in the first seven verses of chapter 13, Paul's talking about government and our relationship to government and how we as believers ought to honor government. But I want us to consider what he's talking about in the following verses and how this conversation is beginning to unfold. Brittany will tell me about her grandma and conversations she has with her grandma. And they're pretty wild. Her grandma's firing on all cylinders, but 
the, the timing isn't always right. So she'll be talking about her, her neighbor and then her grandkids and then uh, World War II and then King David and just random stuff and randomly go back to asking a, a question about her neighbor without uh, reestablishing the context. Well, Paul's thought process here is a lot more clear than uh, Brittany's grandma. He's a lot more uh, sequential in his thought process. And while he might occasionally grind a gear, shifting from one topic to another, uh, he's very thought out in his, his conversation, this letter that he's having. So looking at uh, chapter 13, what is the greater context prior to this conversation on conscience and the strong brother and the weak brother? What is Paul talking about here in chapter 13? So talk about civil government and civil law. What about after verse 7? What is he getting into? Dealing with our neighbors. Okay. And how are we to deal with our neighbors? Peaceful. Yes. Good. Depends on who the neighbors are. Does it though? <laughs> oh, oh, I'm oh, sorry. So I won't sit with an iron fist. Huh. Say love your love. All right, so in love. Good. Uh, Andy, will you read for us verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13? Yeah. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another is fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Alright, so he moves on from civil law to uh, the law of love, and he starts to talk about love and this whole concept of love, how we are to love our neighbor. He goes on in verse 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then he jumps into this context in chapter 14. So as we approach chapter 14, we need to keep that in mind that uh, this is all couched in the, the context of love and how we are to love. And he goes on in the first part of chapter 14, what we've been talking about for about a month now, and he's talking about these two categories of believers. He categorizes, categorizes them as strong believers and weak believers, right? And what are some, some marks of a, a strong believer? What are some marks of a, a weak believer? What have we learned so far up to this point? Okay, good. So the strong believer has an understanding of his freedom, right? And not just an understanding of his freedom, but uh, he also feels free to, to practice, to exercise his freedom. And 
he may or may not exercise that, put that into practice, but he has the, the freedom within his conscience to do so, right? What about the weak brother? What do we know about the weak brother? We don't need to get into politics, do we? <laughs> we don't need to, no. Do have a heavy conscience? Like, do you necessarily? Okay. Heavy conscience. Is there an E? No, just... I don't know. That's what my wife is for, to help me know how to spell. Is that right? Yeah? Okay, good. Um, I think it's important that we know that um, the weak brother has all of his freedoms in Christ. Judicially, he is um, absolutely free in Christ. There is no freedom that the strong brother has that the weak brother doesn't have. So he's not bound by God's law in a way that the strong brother isn't bound by God's law. He's bound by his God-given conscience, right? God has given him his conscience, and that conscience has bound him in a way that his law has not bound him. Does that make sense? He's not bound by the law, but by his conscience. Were you going to say something? Well, I mean, if we have... He... he doesn't have all the freedoms of the stronger brother because what is not done from faith is sin. And so in a sense, it is a transgression for him to go against his conscience and therefore he is not free. But but judicially speaking, he has all the freedoms that the stronger brother has. As far as the law of Moses is concerned, mm-hmm. it, he's not under the law of Moses. Yes. But he's only under sense, his, his own conscience. conscience. Is, is his own law. It is a God-given conscience. Yep. And also important to recognize to remember and to um, realize that both these brothers, both the strong and the weak, are in fact brothers. They're both in Christ, right? Um, They are both saved by the blood of Christ. It's just that the weak brother is bound by his own conscience, again, by his God-given conscience. And as Martin Luther once said, or was at least attributed as saying, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, right? And uh, Paul, throughout this whole chapter has been not only encouraging the the weak brother to not go against his conscience, but to encourage the strong brother not to uh, somehow cause his brother to stumble, that he might go against his his conscience as well. Um, The weak brother may or may not, this is the fat side of a marker, it's not going to work for me, right? Um, But he may or may not uh, understand the freedom that he has in Christ. So just because um, he understands, or just because he chooses not to exercise that freedom doesn't mean that he doesn't understand that he has that freedom. He can intellectually know, okay, well, I have the, the right, the legal judicial right to do this, but I don't feel that, that freedom within my conscience to go ahead and act upon that. But he may not understand that, that freedom as well. Yes? So the weaker brother has room to grow and strengthen into the stronger brother's stance on what he what he knows and what he believes. The stronger brother shouldn't go backwards. Yes, but the stronger brother also has room to grow in embracing the weaker brother, despite his difference of opinions. Remember, these are all issues of opinions, issues uh, that are debatable. Look at that 
first verse in 14, that the one who accepts the weak in faith, um, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, on these debatable things, on these questionable topics where it's not set in stone. Uh, the strong brother is the one who, throughout most of this dialogue, is the one who's being addressed and told, you need to accept and embrace and, and really embrace the weak brothers. He's and what I'm saying is the stronger brother shouldn't go backwards. Well, if the stronger brother understands his freedom that he has in Christ, saying, yeah, he shouldn't submit himself under a yoke of freedom or under a yoke of slavery that isn't truly there, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> your, your voice echoed in here differently than I thought. Yeah. Question. With what he's saying, but you also said that um, God binds a loose our conscience. So what if the strong brother say he doesn't drink alcohol, but then God binds his conscience that maybe that's not the best thing for him? That would seem kind of as going back to weak, but God is the one that I like you get what I think the strong and the weak is throwing off because I don't know that either one is bad. Yeah, they're they're not bad and they're not think, presented as bad. I think you can kind of go back and forth where God puts you. You might put your conscience in my change. Maybe I'm wrong. Might change later on in life to different things that you're that God finds your conscience to. And it might lose your conscience in other ways. Like that, this is okay to do, but then later on, like you get what I'm saying, or is that not? <laughs> um, no, I get what you're saying. Because what you know, a lot of it's on yeah, how you've been taught, and maybe mm-hmm. even the church you go to. You might go to a church that thinks one thing is really wrong, and you agree with that and everything, and then later on in life, you go to a different church and you think that isn't wrong. Yeah. And I think the difference between like the opinion. strong and the weak would be even if you went back on something, you'd probably still have understanding that like you don't have to hold anybody else to that. Like that. So in, in the sense that like you go back on certain things that you thought or whatever, um, but you're not gonna look at it as like a sinful thing toward other people. I guess I don't know. Maybe that could be one difference between. Yeah, that's all good. Uh, One thing to keep in mind, one thing that the strong are identified with here in uh, verse 14. So 14.14 tells us that uh, the strong realizes that he is convinced in the Lord. This is Paul saying, I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So they realize that there is nothing that is intrinsically unclean just by itself. So alcohol isn't necessarily bad. And so, like Britt said, that means that you're not going to force that opinion upon somebody else. You might realize for yourself, okay, well, that's something that I need to abstain from. That's something that's not wise for me to indulge in. Um, But that doesn't make alcohol itself necessarily bad. Uh, And we'll get into that a little bit farther down into the text, too. Um, Yeah, hopefully, by this point, you've kind of been able to place yourself somewhere on the spectrum and identify, okay, well, do I tend towards uh, indulging in my my freedom and my liberties? Uh, We don't want to uh, excessively indulge. Indulge probably isn't the the right word, but to realize that we do have freedoms in in Christ without using it as a sense of entitlement. Or do we tend to be more bound by our conscience? Do we tend more towards 
um, wanting to restrain from the way in which we operate in these matters of opinion. And wherever you are, um, I think we need to realize that we all think that we're right, right? We think that our position is a correct position, and that's why we believe what we believe. Otherwise, we would change, right? And the problem is that we're all sinful, proud people, and we can have a tendency to want other people to conform to us, to want other people to have the same understanding on these secondary issues, on these matters of opinion that we have, and we want them to submit to our lordship and follow our understanding rather than um, approaching it in love. Remember, the whole context of this chapter, leading up to this chapter, is love. And here in verse 15, it's reiterated that uh, we need to be walking according to love. And so Paul will, he has warned throughout this chapter in verse 3 that the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And he essentially says the same thing in verse 10, um, that we need to guard ourselves against judging or belittling another believer for having a difference of opinion on these different matters, on these different things. And uh, picking up in verse 18, again, realizing that we are to love, we are to walk according to love. Paul has been speaking on love. That's the greater context of this. He says, for in this, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So for the one who is in love, self-sacrificial love, considering others is more important than himself, not judging others, uh, not looking with contempt on others, realizing that as verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not made up of eating and drinking, but rather of righteousness and peace and joy. The person who lives this way uh, is serving Christ and is acceptable to God and approved by men. And that's a good thing, right? That's what we ought to strive for, to serve Christ, to be acceptable to God, to be pleasing to men or approved by men. Uh, but when I first read this, I asked myself, is the inverse of this true? Is the opposite of this true as well? Uh, so what do you guys think? If we aren't living in this way, if we aren't serving Christ, does that mean that we are somehow unacceptable to God or that we are not approved by men? And if so, what does that mean? Is the opposite of verse 18 true? Any thoughts? Because that could be a, a big deal, right? If we're not loving our brothers, we're loving ourselves. Does that mean we're not accepted by God? Does that mean that we are not believers? What does it mean to be accepted by God? What are our thoughts? Because the implications of this could be pretty huge. Positionally, you're accepted because Amen. Christ died for all your sins. And the Holy Spirit will reveal to you if you need to change. If you're unwilling to change, then you're breaking your fellowship with Christ. Hmm. Um, but you're not losing your salvation or anything. All right, good. That is a, a big issue. This issue of uh, practice versus position, right? And as you said, positionally, we are not, that is an ugly S, we, we are not going to change. Uh, if we are 
in Christ, and we will always be in Christ, right? We are adopted by him. Nobody's going to take us out of his hand. We are his. That doesn't mean that our fellowship can't be affected between us and the Father. So I want to spend some time and do a little bit of a a word study on this word acceptable. Um, Acceptable or pleasing or well-pleasing. Those are the three ways at least the NASB translates it. So let's go back and look at Romans 12, two most popular verses in Romans 12, the first two verses, and see how it's used there. Will somebody read for us Romans 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, we saw that word twice in those two verses, once in one and once in two, acceptable. And in verse two, it's paired with perfect. Um, Can I get somebody to look up Ephesians 5, 8 through 10? Who's got that for us? All right, Dean's going to grab that. And will somebody else grab Hebrews 13, 20 through 21? Who's got Hebrews 13? Jerry. All right, while you guys are looking for those, I'll read for us 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Same word, to be pleasing or acceptable before God. And Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, what's that say, Dean? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. All right. Pleasing is the word we're looking at there. And Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Again, we're looking for the word pleasing here. Oh, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equipped you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. So those are just a few of the, the places where this word is used. Uh, it's kind of interesting that this word is used nine times, and eight out of nine times that it's used, uh, it's referring to our status before God, that we are well-pleasing to God, or we are pleasing to the Lord, or if we live in this manner, that we will be acceptable to Him. And I think that the ninth time could be understood in that same way, that if we are living in this way, pleasing, acceptable, well-pleasing, that it is something that we are doing as unto the Lord. And just compiling a a definition of what we learn about this word from those verses, we can see uh, from back in Romans 12 that it is a holy offering, a spiritual act of worship, that it is the very will of God, that is his desire for us to live acceptable, pleasing in his sight. And it is declared to be good in Second uh, Corinthians five nine. It is described as the ambition of the believer. This should be the the ambition, the drive, the desire of a believer to live in this way, acceptable, pleasing, um, and even well pleasing before the Lord. It is called the fruit of light, the result of the newness of life. 
that which consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. And then again, we saw uh, in Hebrews that it is by the will of God. This is the will of God that we live holy and acceptable, pleasing lives in his sight. Uh, Two out of nine times we see that word. It's identified as God's will for us to live that way in relationship to him, that we live pleasing as unto the Lord. But uh, as you mentioned, Renee, this is speaking of our practice, not our position in Christ. Our position in Christ doesn't change. Um, So we need to, again, remember that this is an in-house discussion that Paul's having with believers. He's talking to Christians, those who are in Christ, um, how they manage these issues amongst themselves. And so therefore, we shouldn't understand a a failure to love in this way as um, meaning that we are unaccepted by God in a salvific sense, but rather that it is not pleasing behavior to him, that it doesn't reflect him well, that we aren't living as Christians when um, we aren't loving our brother in this way. If we aren't living in this way, then we aren't except our behavior is not acceptable to God, but we ourselves um, remain his. Does that make sense? One more question. Yes. I tend to fall on the legalistic side for sure. I try not to, but I do. Um, but I thought Christians will be known by their fruit. What if there's someone who professes Christ, but they're, you know, living <clears throat> like the world and there's no evidence of it? I mean, you just still try to stir them up to good works, or at what point do you start to wonder? Yeah, Um, it really depends on how we define fruit. So if it's something that is objectively sinful, then we definitely shouldn't be associated with that. We shouldn't be known by that. But if it's something that, again, as Paul describes as a matter of opinion, as a debatable issue, as something that isn't black and white, where we have freedom in Christ, then we need to, uh, if we are in the weaker position, we need to allow that brother to exercise their freedom so long as they don't cross over that line into sin. Can you give some examples of what would be like the secondary issues? <laughs> there are lots of examples. The ones that he gives in this passage. Yes. <laughs> the ones that he gives, he's talking about uh, food, what we eat. Um, yeah, there we go. We've got a list now. Um, and he talks about the different days that we choose to observe, um, holidays or Sabbaths or holy days, what we choose to call those days. Um, and then later on, he mentions alcohol. Um, so those are the three examples that he gives in the text. But there are a number of different issues where we can say, well, the Bible doesn't speak directly towards that. Um, we need to understand that whatever we do, we need to do as unto the Lord. But... Uh, there is freedom in Christ and different ways that we can exercise that. Go ahead. Well, our, our practice, the way that we live, certainly does say something about our position uh, from God's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think most relevant for this conversation is when Jesus said, by this they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Mm-hmm. And when the stronger brother despises the weak or the weaker brother judges the strong, there is a direct violation of love, and the world will not know that we are his disciples because we're not loving one another. So our practice does say something about our position, and that must be taken into account. Yes. But our position isn't at stake if we fail to, to live up to that, right? But they are 
very closely tied together. And that's why it's such a big issue here. And that's why Paul is addressing it. And again, he's addressing most of his attention towards the, the strong believer. And notice that in verse 18, he says that he who lives in this way serves Christ. That's kind of interesting. So it's not a, a matter of, well, am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve my brother? It's more of a matter of, am I going to selfishly live for myself and indulge in um, these freedoms that Christ has allowed me? Or am I going to use these as service towards Christ? Am I going to serve him um, rather than myself? And that makes it a little bit easier to, to differentiate, right? It's not me versus my brother. It's me versus living for Christ. And um, considering the book of Joshua, we could ask ourselves, well, uh, we need to consider this day who we are going to, to live for. Whom will you choose to serve? Are you going to choose to serve yourself or are you going to choose to serve Christ by serving your brother and um, loving him? Uh, even if that means giving up some of the freedoms that you have in Christ. A couple of weeks back, we were looking at the, the judgment of the sheeps and the goats in Matthew 25. And in that judgment, Jesus said that on that day, um, you will be judged based on how you've treated other people. Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done unto me. Whatever you've not done to the least of these, you've not done unto me. And I think it's going to be very similar for believers during the, the Bema Seat judgment when Christ is uh, offering out rewards, that we will be given rewards or, or held back rewards based upon how we loved our brother in this matter of conscience issues, of, of allowing our brother to exercise or to limit their freedom based on how God has constructed their conscience. Yes, Jeff? Some things have been really bothering me. Uh-oh. I'm driving and this car is going in and out of traffic really fast. And I think to myself, you're an idiot. Our thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Andy says he's sorry. <laughs> it doesn't matter if we say it out loud to the person, does it? Well, no, God judges our thoughts, right? Matthew 5, that even if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murdering him. Um, that's the, the standard of the holiness of God. It is. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, right? Not just our actions and our words. So, but yeah. it's okay to realize someone is being unwise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what I should have said. Unwise <laughs> <laughs> individual. I'm probably not one of your brothers. <laughs> you fool. You could say that. Yeah, oh, I could say that. Yeah, that's a good biblical. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, we all relate to you as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of unwise people on the roads, especially in Utah. <laughs> All right, uh, going back to verse 18, we see here that the person who does serve Christ in this way is not only acceptable God, but they are approved by men. And I think we can realize that there are many ways that we can be approved by God, that we can be pleasing to God, and we cannot be approved of by men. Where we can serve God, man is not pleased by that. Um, but... Uh, in doing this, 
and this taking this loving approach, I think it accomplishes both that people aren't going to, especially outsiders, are not going to look at you and say, okay, well, um, that person is giving up their freedom. That person is giving up their liberty to serve and to love their brother. I think it, it will be a, a testimony to the world and that um, we are called to live as enemies in this world this world that is at enmity with God, but if we are loving our brothers, the, the world will see that as something that is approved of, right? Uh, in Galatians, when we're given the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, we're told that there is no law against such things, that these things are approved of. And so in loving our brother, we will be uh, a testimony even to the world that is looking on. Now, going back uh, a little bit up to verse 15 and, and following, I think we can see some results of living in this matter, living in this way. This matter of putting our brother over our liberties and considering our brother is more important than our liberties versus uh, putting, exalting our liberties over our brother. So if we go back and we look in verse 15, again, the whole standard of um, how we are to walk. It says, for if you, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. So that's the standard that he sets in verse 15. To put our brother over our liberties means to walk in love. That is the result of living in such a way. And obviously the opposite, if we're putting our liberties over our brother, then we are not walking in love, right? We're walking according to our own desires, according to our own selfish desires. Uh, and then down here in verse 15 says, for he who serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So in 18, we see that this is noticed and talked about as serving Christ. That's a, a pretty big deal that what we do for our brother is reflecting on Christ. You can go back to Acts 9, how Jesus approached Paul, and he said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me, right? This is the bride of Christ, and he loves his bride. He loves his church, and how we treat her reflects upon how we feel about him. And so if we are serving Jesus, we are uh, accepted by God, right? It's a result, and we are approved of by men two results that we see from serving Christ in this way. And then if we keep going on in verse 19, it says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So more results over here of putting our brother over our liberties. We see uh, it results in peace and building up or edification, right? And that is the, the goal, the purpose of the church, to, to edify, to build up. And that is contrasted with what we see in verse 20. So these things are opposed to one another. Verse 20 says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So here in verse 20, if we're putting our liberties over our brother, we are indeed tearing down the work of God. 
What do you guys suppose, looking at that, the work of God is referring to? What is the result that is being talked about there? The result of putting our liberties over our brother. Division. Yeah, division again within the church, right? We're going to say something, Britt? last chapter that talked about it, how we destroy our brother when we... Yeah, not even in the, the last chapter, but just in our last section that uh, Dean went through. Do you know what verse that is, Dean? Is that 16? Somewhere in there? 15. Sorry, it says, you, <laughs> No worries. Yeah, 15 says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. That's pretty deep, pretty heavy. And Paul says the same things in 1 Corinthians 8. Don't destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And in 1 Corinthians 3, speaking of the church, Paul said, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, the church, Amen. and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Amen. 16 and 17 and first Corinthians 3. Tyler? Yes, ma'am. Sorry, another question. Yeah. This might be difficult to answer, but so we're very focusing on the strong judging the weak. But I come from a place where the weak <laughs> judge the other people like yes. you're very judgmental on. And that creates a lot of division. So uh-huh. how do you know which one is supposed to give in to the other or are you both? <laughs> Does that make any sense? Like, yeah, you are like, supposed to. Be just as much be giving love and acceptance to the person that they see, they think is out of line. Yeah, absolutely. No, nobody is to hold over their brother their own positions, their own beliefs. Um, let's see. It's in our passage later on, but. Uh, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God, verse 22. So whether that faith is um, stronger and allows you to exercise your liberty more, or whether that faith is more constricted, restricted by your own conscience, you are to have that faith as your own, not to impose it upon your brother. And again, verses 3 and 10 um, talk about both uh, the strong and the weak. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat would be the weak, right? He doesn't think he has a freedom to eat, is not to judge the one who eats, which, again, we're going to have people on both sides. People are going to say, dude, it's, it's fine, just just eat the food, the strong, right? Or the weak is going to say, I can't believe you eat that. You're, you're so foul and disgusting. Um, we're told that both attitudes are, are wrong. The, the attitude that we are to have is love, right? We are to walk in love and all things. We're the stronger brother. Yes. And recognizing that we may not be is, is a good step. But when our leaders do it, when the people that are the stronger obvious brothers, like Paul would do it, he's setting such a great example so that those of us can follow um, and they learn from that. Just, just like in any situation, a good leader is going to um, bring up the people um, below them to, to their level to help them learn and grow. And, learn. Um, and they're not going to do it on their own without seeing others do it. Or knowing that they even should, um, so they're they're going to probably be more judgmental and harsh at first. But if they have loving brothers and sisters around, loving leadership, loving um, church that 
acts and operates in a way that's, that's biblical, they'll, they'll come up to the potential. It's being patient with them and being patient with each other that's really important. Yeah. Uh, I've often heard people talk about, especially from more of a, a legalistic perspective, and they'll say, well, we're always trying to, to walk the line. We're trying to see how close we can get to the edge without sinning. Uh, why don't we just pull back farther away from the edge and see how close we can get to holiness? And there is some wisdom in that, but that can have a tendency to, um, to lean towards legalism, right? I'm just going to stay so far away from what God has put up his fence. I'm going to put other fences up in front of God's fences that he said stay away from this. That can tend towards legalism, but I think if we apply that same principle towards love, we can't go wrong. If we think, okay, well, I'm to, to love my brother. And instead of saying, well, how far can I get away from loving my brother? How far can I walk on, on this side of the road without um, loving them and still hold on to my freedoms, hold on to my liberties? If we can abandon that view, we can say, well, how close can I get to, to loving them? How much can I love my brother? I think if we can do that, we'll be fulfilling the, the attitude that Paul is wanting us to have. Amen. Well, and the, the fact of the matter is freedom is dangerous. Yes. But we're free. Yes. And it's dangerous. <laughs> and the answer isn't to be scared of it. The answer is to use it for love. I mean, just like a weapon, <laughs> just like anything in life uh, really can be, become dangerous. But God has pronounced that we are free. And the answer isn't to be scared of what God has pronounced us as, but to wrap it in love. Amen. And not, not make new laws, not seek to put shackles on ourselves, not be selfish. But when we live selflessly in freedom, amazing things happen. <laughs> so that's All a, right, that's a Andy, real quick. Thing. So the... Um, talking about legalism, I think there is wisdom in putting boundaries, reasonable boundaries to on yourself, to not go to areas where you might be tempted, whatever. On yourself, right? On yourself, mm -hmm. yes. Um, but I think elevating things that are not crystal clear in scripture and binding someone else's conscience on that is unloving. I'm speaking here for the perhaps the weaker brother. Um, it's, uh, but conversely, right, when we're talking about first column issues, weaker and stronger need to be very clear about those things, right? Here we're talking about third column issues. But there is a time when you do need to call someone like spoke about it. Yeah, it's not bad to, to talk about these things, right? Uh, I have a, a blanking your outline. It's later on in my notes, but it says that Paul's not instructing the strong against informing the weak, but against imposing his opinions or insisting that the weak adopt his understanding. So again, Paul's not instructing the strong against informing the weak. That's perfectly okay to let them know his position, how he sees scripture, but he is instructing him against imposing his own opinions upon them or insisting that the weak adopt his own understanding. And the same goes for the weak too. To have these conversations is okay, but we need to have our own um, 
opinions be our own, as he says in 22. The faith which you have, have it as your own conviction before God, which tells us in, in one sense, we're not to adopt somebody else's convictions. Just because somebody else feels a certain way about something doesn't mean that we need to adopt that conviction without reason, without cause, without purpose. Um, but we need to rather be convinced in our own mind, as he says in verse 5. Anything that you're going to do, be convinced in your own mind of this. And then don't hold it above your brother. Um, we skipped over a few things. So going back up to uh, verse 19, I think we need to realize Paul's including himself here. He says, so then we pursue these things. Uh, he's talking in the plural. He's talking corporately about the, the church together and how we function together as the church. And I think this assumes close relationships with one another, that we are going to have close relationships and we're going to uh, communicate with each other. We're going to understand where we might have struggles, where our brother might have struggles. Uh, we're going to have a, a love for our fellow brother and a submission to the Lordship of Christ. And notice that he doesn't give specifics here. He doesn't say, well, you can't have any luau's, you can't have any dances, you can only watch PG-rated movies. Um, he's not setting himself up as a, a pope or a president, somebody who's giving everybody uh, exact guidelines for how you ought to live. But he's saying, uh, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And those things might vary from church to church, it will vary from church to church, and definitely from time to time. If he had spoken more specifically and limited it to the first century, we would have a hard time making application. But he's speaking in generalities. Whatever you do, you were due to do it uh, with the purpose of seeking peace and building up one another, uh, with the purpose of seeking not to tear down the, the work of God, what God is doing in his church, in his corporate body. Don't tear that down. Don't go against God. Uh, but rather seek to to build people up. In verse 21. Well, back in 20, we skipped over that too. He says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for men who eats, for the man who eats and gives offense. So again we see the same principle that we saw back in verse 14 that uh, nothing is intrinsically unclean. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. But for certain people, it might be considered unclean. Um, I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 10. If you want, you can turn there. Jeremiah 10. Some people know as the passage talking about why we should not have Christmas trees. Those people are wrong. Um, <laughs> but what it does say in Jeremiah 10 says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. Again, he's not talking about a Christmas tree. He's talking about an idol. He's saying it's just wood. It's just cut down from a forest. It's just cut by the hands of a craftsman with a tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. And then listen to what God says. He says, do not fear them, for they can do no harm. 
they can do no good. They're neither intrinsically good, intrinsically evil. Uh, his point here is that they have no power within themselves, but um, there's nothing um, that is intrinsically good or evil about them. And going back to Romans 14, and um, again, realizing that there's nothing intrinsically good or evil. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 10.23, that's where Paul says, all things are lawful to me. It doesn't mean that all things are profitable. All things are lawful to me, but not all things will, will edify, bring peace and edification. Again, that should be our goal, to love and to, to build up the church, not to tear down the church. But here when he's using this illustration, um, he mentions food specifically, uh, that we are not to tear down the work of God for the sake of food. That's just, uh, that's something we can replace with anything, right? We're not to tear down the work of God. We're not to uh, destroy his church for, for anything, not for food or drink or uh, any secondary issue. It shouldn't be elevated to that point where it's tearing down the work of God. Um, looking at verse 21, Paul says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So again, same principle. It's not just about food, but nothing. He says, don't do anything that's going to make your brother stumble. And here he mentions wine specifically. Uh, it's possible that the Romans were dealing with the specific issue of wine and having division over wine as they likely did with uh, meat and uh, days on which they, they fellowshiped and they elevated as one above another. But uh, we should notice that wine here is not spoken of as evil, right? It's spoken of as something that is neutral. Otherwise, he wouldn't be using it as an illustration. If it was intrinsically sinful, uh, he wouldn't use it here. He just got done saying there's nothing that is intrinsically sinful. Uh, we have the freedom to uh, partake of wine or to not partake of wine. We do not have the freedom to drink to drunkenness, right? Because that will go into a clear black and white sin issue. That's not where we've been given freedom. Yes, ma'am. First, too, I'm thinking that um, if, if you're going to know what will cause your weaker brother to stumble, then you must be having close relationships. Yep. And so, you know, that's what he's talking about here is with your brothers in Christ. You have to know one of them. Amen. To know, you know, what would cause them to stumble. Yeah, that's good. That's assumed, right? That we are fellowshipping together. Um, we can't do that through a, a TV screen, right? You can't fellowship with somebody from home. Um, you can even be guilty of coming to a, a church service, and for years and years, you can just carry on. You can get lost in the mix, especially in bigger churches. But to really rub shoulders with people and to know who they are and to fellowship with them, it's going to... That is assumed here that we're going to be doing that and knowing where each other struggle. Good. All right. Um, so picking back up in verse 22, it says, A faith which you have, have it as your own conviction. You have to have a conviction about it and keep it to yourself, right? Don't impose it upon others, but have it as your own conviction before God. And then we have two options that he pretty much lays out here. He says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So we can either approve of what is of faith only, approve only of what is of faith, what we can do with 
good conscience and the result is that we are happy or we can betray our conscience and the result is that we are condemned. We're self-condemned, right? Again, go back to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation, no objective condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we are his, we are going to be his for sure. But uh, we could, um, I think it's speaking of the subjective feelings of guilt that we would have. If we're doing something that we know that we're not to be doing, then we're going to be condemned in our own hearts for uh, going against our conscience, for going against our faith. And we see... Harden your conscience if you keep going against it. Yeah. And not coming back around. Amen. Yeah, 1 Timothy 4 2 talks about how we can have a, a seared conscience. Um, talking about how we can just build up our um, tolerance to sin, build up scar tissue so that we can do that sin without feeling that feeling of guilt. And that's not good. And that's when it is good to have a, a brother step in and say, hey, I don't, I don't know if what you're doing is right because um, that is going against our conscience. That is sin, objectively. We see that in 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. I think that's Paul's main point that... Um, if you can't do something with a clear conscience, if you can't eat from faith, that's sin for you, which is a hard concept for us to understand sometimes that something can not be sin for one person, but it can be sinful for another person. Um, but this happens all the time. Um, we can do things in good faith that are wrong, but you cannot do good without doing it in faith. So there are all kinds of people who will um, commit jihad, right? False religions who will commit jihad or uh, false prophets who have taken children in marriage and they've done so with a, a good conscience. They think, oh, it's perfectly fine for me to do these things. Uh, that doesn't make it okay. Um, as believers, believers and unbelievers alike can be experts in justifying our sin in lying or cheating or stealing, uh, we can think that it's okay, but that doesn't make it right. So we need to um, realize that whatever is not of faith is sin. That's especially important for the, the weak believer. He's addressing the weak believer here. That if you can't do something, then don't do it. If you can't do it with a good conscience, don't do it. But um, secondarily, for the strong believer, we need to realize that our actions will impact and affect the, the unbeliever. Or not the unbeliever. Wow. The weak believer. So, we have a couple minutes for thoughts or questions. I know you probably have a lot of thoughts and questions. We're going to have one more week in Romans 14, so might be able to get some of those answered next week. But any other thoughts or questions on any of these things? There's a lot there. I just want to say thank you. It cleared it up for me. I think really I'm being dogmatic on the primary issues, actually, and the secondary, and not the father so much by. So that helps me clear that line today. So okay, good. Yeah, it's not an excuse for, for sinning, right? But um, you have to make that distinction. And evil things, again, don't become good things if they're, they're done in faith. But good things can, for you, be evil if they're done without faith or against your conscience. All right.
To call that bad driver an idiot or whatever. Yeah. Andy forgives you. <laughs> oh, man. I was having a, a conversation with one of my buddies this week. Um, he's starting a new business and he's having to make phone calls to a bunch of people in like city offices or uh, like community principalities or whatever and um, try to ask them for stuff. And he's saying, well, he's having a hard time um, feeling like he's allowed to ask them. Like he feels like he, he shouldn't be asking them. Um, but he's just asking them to, to do their job. And so I was telling him, well, when I was growing up, I was not always the best kid. And I did a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing. I found out pretty quickly that if I had this mindset, this attitude that I should be there and I operated by that mindset, then people wouldn't realize that I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. And they would um, ask me, what are you doing and why are you doing that? And so I, I shared that with him and I said, yeah, if you just have that mindset that you're supposed to be calling <laughs> and it's not bad for you to be calling, um, maybe it'll help you in um, having more confidence. I was using a, a bad illustration. I was pumping myself up with confidence that I shouldn't have had um, to do things that I shouldn't have been doing. And I was thinking about that afterwards and I was realizing that I had just done that maybe a day or two before. Uh, we had gone to the store and Britt was looking for milk that was on sale and it was all out. And I thought, I'm just gonna walk in the back and I'm gonna see if they have any in the back room. And I, um, I put that, that confidence on, right? That attitude of, well, I'm supposed to be here so nobody's gonna um, question whether or not I should be here. And I walked out the back and I looked for milk. Um, I don't think I did that with, with good conscience. I don't think I did that in faith because I had to um, don that the attitude of, I'm allowed to be here so that I wouldn't get questioned. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, kind of a weird story. But. If you have a clipboard and a lanyard, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're yep. definitely in. Yeah. Or, or an elder badge, a Pepsi shirt. Yep. <laughs> you got those. I, I wasn't wearing a Pepsi shirt that day. Yep. <laughs> huh. All right, well, let's pray and we'll go fellowship. God, again, we thank you for the, the diversity within your body. You've made us all different. You've made some brothers with a, a strong conscience, some brothers with a, a weak conscience, and, and that's okay. We praise you for that diversity. We pray that you would give us uh, an understanding and a love, even an appreciation for brothers and sisters in Christ who see things differently than we do, who have differences of opinions, who um, see these debatable issues in a different way. God, help us to debate these things rightly in a way that brings honor and glory to you, in a way that helps us to better understand you and to, to think about what is good and what is right and what is honoring and pleasing to you. God, we do want to be uh, acceptable before your eyes. We want to do the things that are acceptable in your sight. We want to be approved of by men when it is uh, acceptable to do so. Uh, but we want to, above all, stand upon the truth of your word. We want to shine like your stars in a crooked and depraved universe. God, help us to be set apart and to be holy even as you yourself are holy. And God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for this day. Uh, lead us as we seek to walk in you. Amen.